I don't think we're we're teetering. I think we're 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 on the verge of a restoration of the masking and sort of moderate lockdown regime. Welcome to Post Corona, where we try to understand COVID-19's lasting impact on the economy, culture, and geopolitics. I'm Dan Senor. Delta, this is New York City. This was supposed to be the summer that we returned to normal, right? Here in New York City and in every major city around the world. But now there's increasing speculation that it might not happen because of the Delta variant and other variants that may hit us from the mutating virus. How should our government and public health leaders respond? How should we respond? We want to sit down with frequent post-corona guest, friend of the pod, John Pod Horitz, for a midsummer check-in on where we are in the city's return. Specifically, we wanted to come back to a topic John joined us to discuss last year about Broadway. When would Broadway really reopen? As that's a proxy for New York's return to its vibrant and striving pre-corona past. As our listeners know, John Podhoritz is the editor-in-chief of Commentary Magazine. He's a columnist for the New York Post, and he's a longtime writer about live theater, films, and popular culture. He's also a fellow New Yorker with whom I banter with on an ongoing basis about the state of the city, sometimes on this podcast and sometimes not. Now, just for context, keep in mind when we talk about Broadway that pre-corona, Broadway attracted some 15 million theatergoers on an annual basis. That's close to $2 billion in revenues in a typical year. And that doesn't even include all the other derivative jobs that are generated from millions of theatergoers attending shows each year. According to New York City's tourism agency, in a typical year, there are 66 million visitors to New York City generating $72 billion in economic activity and $7 billion in tax revenues. According to the organization Broadway League, close to $15 billion of that economic activity and 100,000 jobs here come from people going to shows and visiting restaurants and hotels and using transportation and all the other local services tied to the theater experience. So there's lots of excitement, you can imagine, around Bruce Springsteen having reopened his show on Broadway. But who else? Is the pop culture economy of New York coming back or not? And if not, is that because of structural obstacles with New York's return? Or is the Delta variant the new game changer? And what about Eric Adams, the favorite to be New York's next mayor? What do we think of his plans to bring the city back to life? We'll get into all these topics against the backdrop of Delta and New York. This is Post-Corona. And I'm pleased to welcome John Podhortz back to the Post-Corona podcast. John, this is your third visit on the Post-Corona podcast. It's my third Post-Corona podcast. I'm honored. I feel like the Francis McDormand of the podcast. Three Oscars. I'm three Post-Corona appearances. There are a few of us, and we're we're mighty. We don't have we don't have podcast um, swag, but if we did, you would be the first one to receive it. Unlike the merch from Commentary, merch dot commentary dot org. That's all. Right. All the post Corona podcast listeners should go to the merchandise uh, tab at the at the Commentary uh, website and order podcast merch. They've actually have very cool merch, and if you're a regular listener to the Commentary podcast, as I am, you will appreciate some of that merch. Okay. So, John, you were on this podcast in December 
of last year and then in April of this year, we're going to focus on some of the predictions you made about where New York City would be now. But before we get to whether or not we can hold you accountable for your predictions, I want you to just describe, I want to set the the table here in terms of where we are right now in the pandemic, because it it's like this weird phase. Here we are in the middle of summer, and there was this sense for the beginning of the summer, as everyone was getting vaccinated, as there was this pent-up demand for a return to economic and cultural normalcy. And everyone, you know, there was just unbelievable enthusiasm and energy. And now we're like teetering a little bit because some of that energy could be suffocated. So what's going on and why? I don't think we're we're teetering. I think we're 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 on the verge of some kind of uh, a restoration of the masking and sort of moderate lockdown regime. Uh, we already have it in the largest county in the United States. Los Angeles in Los County. Angeles County, which yeah. announced a masking policy indoors for everyone, vaccinated or unvaccinated, the number of deaths in uh, Los Angeles County from COVID, uh, the last time I looked on a daily basis was two. Um, New York City, I think... And hospitals aren't being overrun. They're not being overrun. In New York, just to give you an example of how this works, there is a, the man who is going to be borough president of, of Manhattan, Mark Levine, who is, the, uh, who is the head of the health committee of the city council and is a COVID hysteric, uh, just you know, put, breathlessly put up on Twitter the fact that hospitalizations are rising in New York City. And he put up a chart showing you know, from the horrors of last April, May, June to the you know to then the spike in January to now. Uh, there are 249 people in the hospital with COVID, and 52 people in the uh, in ICU. In the entirety of New York City, a city of 8.4 million people, and Levine is demanding a new masking regime for the vaccinated and unvaccinated. This is, he's not the only one. The Atlantic published two pieces today about why people should put masks back on. And there seems to be a, a mad rush uh, in the wake of the Delta variant and the not really alarming numbers that the Delta variant is producing in terms of hospitalizations and deaths to compel nice, respectable, vaccinated people to uh, sheep-like return to this uh, regime in which we, are no, which we are not allowed to see other people's faces and in which we are supposed to sort of live in, in, in fear, even as they're telling us that, the Delta, that there is an 83%, according to the latest study, that there is 83% protection, whatever that means, from uh, the mRNA vaccinations against the Delta variant. So let's, I want to stay on the numbers just for, for a minute here. So first of all, what we know is we still know, thanks to some kind of like, you know, divine intervention, that children are barely affected by COVID and so far 
what we know barely affected by the Delta variant. That that still holds, right? Right. And it's not, look, again, if you look at the numbers, you see an astoundingly small number of children or people under the age of 18 who have been hospitalized or who have died. The numbers remain out of uh, 75 million people under the age of 18, 336 deaths, I believe, from COVID since the beginning of the pandemic. 336, there are 75 million Americans under the age of 18. Right. You can't even come up with a fraction to express that. Just to make that clear, and the vast majority of people who cannot be vaccinated, as we know, are under the age of 12, right? Among, according to the latest numbers that I've seen, uh, as we are speaking, for the most threatened population in the United States, that is adults over the age of 18, and I mean, we can even break it down, um, 18 and up, uh, 68% of Americans have at least one dose, 60% are fully vaccinated, which means that in, the spa- in a matter of a couple of days, we will hit that magical 70% number of at least partially vaccinated Americans. And we are, we are a couple of weeks away from having 70% of everybody over the age of 18 fully vaccinated. And we have, and we have a Delta variant for which these vaccinations are a perfect and extraordinary protection for everybody who has been vaccinated. So when we see these stories, so we see these stories like the, Democratic caucus from this, uh, the state of Texas where they flew and three or four members from the state legislature got COVID. When we hear about Nancy Pelosi's office or the White House or the New York Yankees, you, you, we see these stories. They lack any kind of context, right? I mean, in terms right. of how to put them in perspective. Well, there are two. there are two possible perspectives, one of which is... Yeah, it's possible if you are in if you are if you are in a, a, a small uh, enclosed space with somebody who has COVID and you are vaccinated, you may end up testing positive for COVID with no symptoms, mm-hmm. and you have absolutely no symptoms, and it doesn't bother you, and it doesn't affect you. It's not even it's 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 not not even the flu. It's not even close to the flu. It's 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 nothing, right? Or mm-hmm. Uh, people aren't really telling the truth about whether they're vaccinated. So explain I mean, that. That's well, what, what we don't know. Well, well, so people, so the Yankees, right? I mean, yeah. I, it's whatever. The sport, they, they say they're vaccinated. How do we know they're vaccinated? Uh, we know a lot of people under the age of 40 are refusing to get vaccinated. Why wouldn't somebody in sports refuse to get vaccinated? Is there some? Is there a vaccine cop that is ensuring that they have a vaccination card or the Excelsior pass that you get in New York State or something? I doubt it. So I mean, I doubt that the players union will would allow that to happen. So we're told they're all fully vaccinated, but we don't know if they're vaccinated. So one thing I was perplexed by. So I'm living now in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and I even before the news of the Delta variant had kicked in. I'd walk the streets of the Upper West Side of Manhattan or I'd walk through Central Park and most of the people I would see were wearing masks. Now, the numbers about vaccination, the numbers on vaccinations in New York City are high. I got to believe the numbers in Manhattan are even higher. And I got to believe if you were Mm -hmm. looking for a 
a, um, a a subset of the American population that is an outlier in terms of high numbers of vaccinations, it would be the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Right. And yet, in the right. Upper West Side of Manhattan, everybody was wearing masks. So what and is this going is, on? This is precisely the point, because if you are going to push the button that says panic, the people who are going to panic are the people who are vaccinated. Because they are the ones who are the most concerned about COVID. And if you don't provide them with context and you join in this bizarre uh, effort to um, to re-alarm the American people about the dangers of, of, this, of this variant, the people who are going to respond first are the ones who are the most responsive to these authorities who are talking about it, like Mark Levine, the head, the incoming, the incoming borough president borough of Manhattan. President. And uh, go ahead. Yeah, no. So, so of course they're the ones who are going to mask up again. Because what is it? So what did they say? They say, you know, look. I mean, it's really the protection's very high. I mean, if you look into listen to the way like Fauci says, he says everybody needs to get vaccinated. The protection's very high. It's very high. Of course, you know, look, things could be uh, and we could be back in the position where people have to wear a mask. I mean, we're having these conversations every day. So if you're like an A student, if you're like the sort of person who goes through your life, you know, looking to get a, a gold star for your personal behavior and your personal conduct, you're going to sort of say, well, what, what am I waiting for? Am I going to wait for the CDC to say I got to put a mask on again? They're going to say it, so I'll put it on now, so I'll keep it on. I mean, I don't know. I mean, how do I know? How do we know? We don't even really know. And those are the people who are going to get vaccinated. And in my estimation, I mean, I don't have any evidence of this this is just sort of my understanding of human nature but the people who aren't uh are are have made a very considered decision that they're not going to get vaccinated it's been seven months it's been seven months since the vaccines are around anybody who isn't getting it is 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 not getting it for a reason they're not getting because they don't have access to it i mean that is a that's a bald-faced lie everybody has access to it in the united states it's free and all of that they don't want to be vaccinated well how, how do you react for, to the you know the the confusing i'll, I'll, I'll you know I'll, I'll i'll be um generous here and say some of the confusing information dissemination about the vaccines I, I mean, I think it's very simple. I think what what you say, what I mean, I, I don't know how you say this if you're Biden or you know whatever or Fauci or something, but you say uh, if you get vaccinated, uh, you're 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 in the clear. You really shouldn't be worried about getting COVID. If you're not vaccinated, you should be worried about getting COVID, and it's on you. It is on you, buddy, and it's on your children. And if you want to walk around believing nonsense that you read on reddit about how it's bad you know because you might want to have children in three years so you're not going to get vaccinated you go right ahead but the idea that your behavior your your considered decision not to do this should have the effect of forcing the 70 percent of adults under over the age of 18 who have who have been who are basically who have gotten vaccinated already and this incredible achievement i mean uh, that's the other thing that gets me we're now in this pessimistic phase about this. And, and a lot of this is Democrats wanting to blame Trump voters and, 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 and all of that and talk about how it's all Tucker Carlson's fault and all this, you know, just close to 200 million people in this country have been vaccinated in seven. We've never, we've never sought to have anything like this happen before. 
It's a huge accomplishment. You know, there's been a national mobilization. Uh, we don't we don't have the entire population as the as the you know as the baseline because uh, because there are I don't know what it is I think it's uh, fifty or sixty million people under the age of twelve who can't get it right so so that's two hundred and seventy million people of whom you know uh, among the adults seventy percent have had at least one shot and by by you know the middle of August it will there will be seventy percent will be fully vaccinated of the entire adult population in the United States and the the health messaging by the health, you know, by sort of the health media, um, it, it has gone in this entirely pessimistic, talking down uh, uh, direction uh, about the the terror that we face in terms of this. And again, they're saying that children are going to have to wear masks in schools. Uh, you know, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics is recommending masks for every child over the age of two, as though there are not profound psychological consequences for making children walk around and not being able to see the faces of other kids and other adults, like the, the untold issues that are raised by that. It's a horror show. It is a horror show. And they're talking down the achievement of vaccination. And frankly, I think there is an interesting political fight here because it cannot possibly be in Biden in the political interest of this administration not to declare victory over the, over the virus. No, you know, and, they wanted to. Their goal was to have yeah. their equivalent of like their Yom Ha'atzmaut moment in Israel, which was July 4th, yeah. right? They were going to have, right. se- what was yeah. the, well, yeah, whatever the, the goal well, was. They said it was going to be 70%. 70% so, yeah. so basically it's about, um, they were about a month early, but they're going to get to their 70%, and now they're not going to be able to have a celebration. And what's more, if the CDC or whoever at the CDC is going to win this argument, and there is going to be a mask recommendation made. What are the economic consequences of that going to be? I mean, what are the spiritual well, okay. so economic I, so, consequences? So I want to I want to stay on that. Okay. So so then, what are the motivations of government leaders, like you said, the incoming borough president of Manhattan? Whatever the the, the logical extension of 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 what they're diagnosing right now is a return to some version of these restrictions. And I can't believe, I mean, it's in their interest because it's going to slow down economic growth in New York City and in cities, you know, across the country. So what are they thinking? Why is it Levine's interest? Because he has a, there's a perverse incentive structure here. Levine got famous by being Mr. Vaccine, Mr. COVID news on Twitter. Uh, You know, he became a New York City celebrity in part because of that. And it's the same incentive structure that the entire health bureaucracy or the public health bureaucracy has, in my view, in relation to this, which is that they, uh, they, they they like it. They like it. They like it. They, you know, Fauci said, I think people should wear masks whenever they're sick for the rest of eternity. If they have a right, cold, we're not going to shake hands mask. anymore. Yeah, we shouldn't shake hands anymore. He likes it. He likes it. It's funny. He's an 80 year old man. You know, God love him, whatever. You know, uh, he should, he, the consequences of what it is that he is suggesting uh, are so far beyond his writ. Because they have to do with social cohesion, 
the American spirit and all of that and this whole notion that you can separate out all of that from these uh, public health orders. I mean, the 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 public health director of Los Angeles County, Barbara Freer, isn't even a doctor. She's some kind of PhD in communications from Brandeis. And her entire career has largely been about talking about how the healthcare system is unfair to minorities. So uh, what she knows about epidemiology can is what I know about epidemiology, which is what she reads in the newspapers. <laughs> and so she can say whatever she wants. I can't impose my views on everybody, but she can sort of impose her views on everybody. I noticed the sheriff of Los Angeles County said, hey, I'm not enforcing any of this. Don't you get me involved in your nonsense. I, this, I'm not doing that. You can't get me to walk around get, arresting people with my guys for, for people who aren't wearing masks. And, I, you know, and I, I'm not going to do that. So even there, you have a kind of interesting division between this world of people who are incentivized to be, to be hawkish on this. And I think everybody else... But uh, and and then people who, like I say, are sort of like good. good but what about the argument that some of the epidemiologists make that the masks, the reimposition, the reimposition of the masks will help us reduce, you know, this variant mutating and getting new variants, and it just slows down that entire process. Yeah. I, well. Okay. So so here's the ultimate uh, the the ultimate problem with this is. Are you going to make policy about the single most disruptive event uh, of our lifetimes on the basis of a fear of something that hasn't happened yet, but may, but you don't know if it will, but it could, but it won't, but it will. There are two other, there are two ways of looking at this. One of which is, are we actually now taking as our goal or our purpose, the eradication of COVID? Because the eradication of COVID is a matter lasting decades. We eradicated smallpox. You know, the first time anybody was vaccinated against smallpox was in the 18th century. I mean, this is not people exposing themselves to smallpox in order to prevent them from getting larger smallpox happened in the 18th century. We don't, we, you don't eradicate diseases with a snap of your fingers and it's like, you know, what did, what did Boris Johnson say when he announced that they were ending COVID restrictions? He said, we need to learn how to live with this disease, meaning that there's going to be some version of it around. There'll be variants and this will happen just as there, that, that's where it's like the flu. And if we don't, if we hold to this impossible standard that we can't do anything unless we have 95% vaccination rates. Human nature has t taught us a very important lesson here, I think. I mean, social scientists who are serious people should be studying this you know, forever, which is you say to people, okay, here is this thing. It's a vaccine. It's going to help you with this and get your life restored and help your children and all of this. And you throw it out there and you tell people and you give them all the information. You tell them. And in the end... 60 to 70, you know, 30, 20 to 40% of them aren't going to do it because they don't trust you and they don't trust this and they have their own ideas and they don't like doctors. And, you know, when they went to a doctor, they were misdiagnosed with something and they read something on, on Facebook or they read something here or their mother told them something else or their uncle had something. And this is what it's going to be like. This is, and yeah. this was probably always true. We just never had a kind of collective 
understanding you know we didn't have these kind of stats and a collective understanding that in the end you ask people to do it and if you get 70 percent of people to do it that's pretty amazing yeah i have the i have and the again, numbers we're like, i just pulled okay. up the numbers so yeah uh so the uh nearly 80 percent of those over 65 years old so they're the the ones at high ri highest risk are vaccinated and 60 percent of all adults are vaccinated those are extraordinary numbers right. Um, Boris Johnson, I agree, has been very impressive. The chief medical officer of the UK said, quote, we could get into trouble again surprisingly fast. And despite the chief medical officer saying that, that things could get really bad quickly, Prime Minister Johnson is saying full steam ahead. We're reopening. Right. Now, I, I mean, it's not. I mean, the, the odd thing is, right. So it's not really full steam ahead. It's OK. We have the vaccines. Either the vaccines uh, keep you from getting, give you immunity against COVID, or they 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 weaken its effect on you dramatically, extraordinarily, and so that's what happens if you're vaccinated, and if you're not vaccinated, fine. That's your responsibility. Then the obvious rejoinder to that is. Well, you can't say that about kids. You can't say that about people under 12. You can't say that because they're, it's not approved for them and they're children. And you can't just, you know, leave them to the hazards of, 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 a, of a terrible, you know, of a terrible virus. Uh, and guess what? They don't get it. They don't get it. They don't transmit it and they don't have it and they don't die from it and they're not hospitalized from it. Uh, An a infinitesimal number of them get this. And so that theory, which is what undergirds the American Academy of Pediatrics saying kids over two should wear masks, is an extremist theory. That it is extremism to say... Well, they'll, they'll say if you reduce okay. the, re the replication of the virus by 50%, you reduce the number of variants by 50%. Isn't that important? Yeah, but how do we know in which direction? Like, I mean, this is the thing about the variants, you know, it's like, apparently, you know, there could be a, uh, you know, an IOTA variant or an Epsilon variant or whatever. Delta Airlines, what, I'm like, sure, my, wished yeah, that, yeah, my, that my they terrible, one of those. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it could be stronger or it could be, <laughs> or it could be weaker. You know, I mean, it could evade certain things and strengthen in others. It could, it could wreak havoc in other countries and have no effect here. I mean, that's part of the problem here is... It's not going away. And so either you're telling people that we are living in an atmosphere in which every couple of months they could say, you know what, your kids have to come home from school for another two weeks and go on Zoom. Or you have to wear a mask everywhere. Or at the worst, you're not allowed to go into your office or you, you, know, you can't go to a stadium or you can't go to a movie theater uh, and all of that. And then really, we're going to live like that? I, we've already seen we're, we're living with the consequences we have this roaring recovery right you were talking yeah. about in this thing we were going to get the gdp numbers and they're going to be like your, your eyes are going to pop out of your head when you get the second quarter gdp numbers but we already have this massive supply chain disruption all over the place because of what happened last year are we going to go back into that and choke the recovery off like you know the third quarter numbers if we have some kind of a resurgence of a lockdown, of a semi, even mildly 
what happens to the supply chain then? What happens to, we're already hearing there's, you know, terrible labor shortages. Then you're imposing new forms of labor shortage. I just don't, and you know, yeah, Biden and Ron Klain, the chief of staff and all of this, are chicken. I think they're chicken. I think they won't go and say, all right, enough. Like, I'm the president of the United States. Enough already. We did this for for almost, for almost a year and a half. Genug. We're done. We got to live with it. We got to recover. Our entire political future is based on this. Everything we want to do is based on it. It's based on a roaring recovery and things being good. You are not going to talk this country down into another emotional tailspin. Right. And the, uh, but they're but they can't do it. July 20th Wall Street Journal editorial, I'll quote from it. COVID was always destined to become endemic. As with other viruses, the hope is that as it mutates, it will become less deadly even if it becomes more contagious. The policy goal all along has been to minimize COVID's impact on society and the healthcare system with vaccines and testing not to eradicate it. COVID cases will flare up here and there, but they are manageable. Right. And there's been this weird trans, you know, transformation of the entire logic of everything, which was we had to stop the spread and go into lockdown in order to save the healthcare system from exploding or being overrun with, you know, patients who couldn't be treated. And then since they couldn't be treated, COVID would then ravage everywhere. And now this is sort of locking down for the sake of locking down for a for an eradication goal that is nonsensical. And it's in part it's nonsensical because we now know that it's not reachable. We know you and you know this is the United States of America, you cannot get 100% participation in the vaccination regime. This is very clear and you know people who don't get vaccinated are idiots but so what so all right you know, people, Let, let's let's yeah. just stay on that for one second okay. so you yeah. you recently on your podcast had uh, uh, MBD Michael Brendan Doherty on from National Review to talk about what I thought was an excellent piece about how to how we've basically bungled our communication mm-hmm. with those who are vaccine skeptical vaccine resistant um, I think he doesn't like the term anti-vaxxers. He thinks there are plenty of people who don't have the vaccine that aren't anti-vaxxers. They're just skeptical. Right. A friend of mine who's a, a professor of behavioral economics argues, he's a liberal guy, uh, argues that we should be more candid in our messaging, more candid than you're prescribing that President Biden be, which is to say yeah. there are risks. He, he, you know, This professor, I don't want to name him. I don't know if he wants to be quoted, but he says, yeah. he, he says we, sh- we shouldn't say the vaccine is safe and effective even if we believe it we should say there are that we believe the vaccine is safe and effective and we believe there are still risks with it but there are also risks with getting covid and the risks with getting covid are greater than the risks any risk you could possibly imagine with the vaccine in other words just change the way we talk about it to those who are skeptical right well look so uh, one of the numbers that is flo- floating around in the conspiracy theory world is that the you know, the sort of the national healthcare statistic thing, VAERS, says that, you know, 6,800 people uh, have died of COVID who've been vaccinated or have, you know, been vaccinated have died. Mm-hmm. Okay. But that's 6,800 people who have died vaccinated in the United States. You know, people die every day and they die of things that aren't COVID, even if they've been vaccinated. 
and all of that. But it's very easy to sort of take these stats and kind of mush them into something that is that is recognizably something that will cause people to increase their vaccine hesitancy. What I took away from from Michael Brendan Doherty's appearance and his piece and all that is this is a fool's errand that you we've said what we've said the vaccines are out there people know people who've gotten vaccinated and whatever and they know a lot of people have gotten vaccinated and it is now a deliberate conscious considered choice not to get vaccinated and you know as i say as, as my grandmother would say sei gesund like to your health good you've made this choice we're now in a bizarre position where the vaccinated are being governed by the unvaccinated. There was a time when we, the whole notion of this was, you know, we all had to live under these restrictions because there was no way of preventing the transmission of the, of the virus otherwise. And so better to be safe than sorry. There was no other way other than keeping people apart to the extent possible to, to restrain the transmission of the virus. And now it's in order to, uh, I don't know what, in order, the, the, in order to allow the unvaccinated to remain unvaccinated, I mean, not that they, there's no way to force them, but in order to allow that, then you have to go around in, in masks. All right. Well, I mean, screw them. You know, it's like, I fine, you know, I'm not wearing, a, I mean, the whole point of wearing a mask uh, is so that you don't give somebody else COVID. It's not so you don't breathe in COVID, as far as I understand it. So you don't give somebody else. I'm not going to give anybody COVID. So if you tell me, Mark Levine or whoever's in New York or, you know, Barbara for whatever, that I'm supposed to wear a mask, I want to throw an egg at your head. I mean, I, I did what I was supposed to do. You're telling me all the health stats say I'm not going to give anybody else COVID. Don't tell me to put a mask on. I did what you told me to do, and now you're telling me I got to wear a mask. Well, I don't have to wear a mask. You tell them to wear a mask, and if they don't wear a mask, then and they get other people sick, then I hope they feel really sorry about it. But I, you know, what, what where where else are we in uh, relation to this? Okay, so where we are is we're in the middle of summer in New York City. We were all excited about New York City's return to normalcy, and I think it applies. New York City can be a proxy for cities all over the world. I want to go back to some predictions you made in our earlier podcast, so I'm going to make you uncomfortable and play a few choice sound bites uh, that you made, and then let us. You'll tell us where you think we are relative to what you predicted. So uh, the first one was about Broadway and the return to Broadway, and why you believe Broadway would never be the same. So let's play that first one. This is from December of, of last year. The presumption that, you know, we're just going to reopen and it's going to reopen and then all the shows that were hits before are going to come back and be hits, I think, again, is very questionable. Like, the bloom is off the rose on some of these things. The feeling that you have to see Hamilton or you'll die, whatever that pressure was, isn't really there anymore. That cultural pressure has lessened. It will, you'll need new things that people are desperate to see. Okay. So why were we talking about that in December of 2020? Because New York City pre-pandemic, the Broadway industry, was generated about $2 billion in revenues. Uh, 
you know, it was, it was, you know, directly, I think it was about 500 million directly, but then obviously there's all these ancillary businesses. So it's in a really important part of the New York city economy employs about a hundred thousand people. Uh, I think something like 15 million people a year were going to Broadway shows in the last years, last few years during this boom in Broadway. And you were saying in December, it's over. It's never going to be the same. Do you still feel that way? I do. I do for a couple of reasons. I mean, I, I, I'm struck by the way that um, some of the reopening plans are, are interesting because they take account of what I'm, I'm saying. There are shows that are reopening that are reopening for a limited run. I assume they're reopening for a limited run because they can't get fully staged new shows up pretty much until the end of December. And so you have shows that had closed, like a musical called Waitress. I think they probably have the set somewhere in storage. And they can go back into the theater that they were in. And they can run it for 12 weeks or 15 weeks or something like that. And like get people reacclimated to the theater. That's one show that's doing that. There's another show called Jagged Little Pill that's reopening that I think probably they figure only has a short shelf life. But, you know, we'll see. Um, there's one musical that's opening in September called Six, which was a highly anticipated show about the wives of Henry VIII that was a hit in London. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's a small scale show with a cast of six and they're the wives of Henry VIII and it's like 80 minutes long and apparently, you know, can be, be staged in a sort of, in a, in a limited way. I think I'm going to use a peculiar analogy for you, which is, um, for Broadway, which is Bring Black it. Widow. So Black Widow is the Marvel movie, the first Marvel movie in two years. And it came out a couple weeks ago. Uh, Marvel is the cash cow of the 21st century. It's the single greatest entertainment. The Marvel Cinematic Universe starting in 2008 is the single greatest uh, entertainment cash cow that we have almost ever seen. 24 straight money-making hits. Some of them, you know, the bringing Disney, who bought Marvel at some point, in you know, like to 60 to 70 percent of market share in theaters uh, in 2019, uh, largely through uh, showing these Marvel movies and stuff like that. So Black Widow opens. It opens in theaters. It opens on Disney. It, there's a thirty dollar. You can get it on Disney Plus for thirty bucks, and it doesn't do that well. And you know why? It, it's not first of all, it's not that good a movie. So I don't think that you know there was good word of mouth, but. Again, like, not that fresh. Like, it's been two years, and you know what? Like, there was a kind of momentum, and it was going, and it was part of the national cultural conversation. They kind of kept it going with these shows on Disney Plus that are Marvel Cinematic Universe shows, but, you know, they're TV shows. You know, they're, they're not movies, and they they kind of, you've had a lot of Marvel product, and it's free, and it's on Disney Plus, which you're paying $6 a month for, and I don't know, to go to the theater. And so I, I'm very struck by this because you would have thought this was the impregnable fortress of popular culture, that people were excited by it. They were they haven't been as excited by anything really, you know, in, in decades that the, the, you put something, it says Marvel and you go. The only thing like it is Pixar. And I don't know. I think that the brand name value of this stuff Two years of, uh, you know, two years of, uh, of silence or a year and a half, whatever, is, um, you know, absence hasn't made the heart grow fonder. It's just sort of like, all right, woo, 
lose, you know, we'll do something else. And so I think the 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 current the hit fair on Broadway, Hamilton, uh, the Book of Mormon, Lion King, there's three or four other things, are just not gonna have the oomph that they had when they were constantly continuing and going things. And there are these weird renovations, like there's this Harry Potter two-part play, Cursed Child. I've actually seen it tw- twice with my kids. Two plays. Wow. Sp- spend, you know, spend hundreds of dollars per show to see five and a half hours of this. They've, they've renovated it. It's reopening as a single show. They've edited it down to a single show. Uh, why? Because they... they they know they can't pull the business anymore. And so if they want to run it, they got to run it to make it clear that you only have to buy one ticket because telling people buy, they're going to go now. Nah, I'm not buying I had uh, I a care. few weeks ago, we had Jonathan Pollock on from Black, the Blackstone Group, who's mm-hmm. a senior executive there in the real estate investing. And he says that a lot of the tourism you're going to see in New York City is going to act, may not be people that travel here by plane, but people coming from the tri-state area because there's this pent-up demand post-COVID. Yeah. So you can see all these people from the broader area willing to spend money on quote-unquote tourism slash entertainment, whereas before they would have traveled elsewhere in the country. Is it possible that we could build up market and demand from people just around here who are looking for stuff to do? Sure. I mean, that was the story of Broadway before the 1970s. I mean, before before the city got unsafe and nobody wanted to come in from the suburbs, the the audience for Broadway was a New York tri-state area audience. That's who went to shows. And, you know, they had the same number of theaters and they had the same size audiences and all of that. You could You could sustain a pretty serious Broadway theater with a really engaged tri-state audience let's go to the next quote which is uh what what the implications of all of this are for the creative class that has historically been drawn to new york city so let's listen to what you said on that front back in december a hundred thousand jobs the steel industry in the united states doesn't employ many more than a hundred thousand people like i mean if you think about it it doesn't sound like that many people out of 330 million people but that is a major american employer that was literally cut off like it was you know it was folded up and put into hibernation so there you're talking about the hundred thousand people uh that worked in and around broadway yeah well if they haven't moved away if they haven't established different life choices and life experiences and all of that but a lot of them did move away um maybe not all and maybe they are they kept their they sublet or they paid their rent or whatever um you are going to have a labor short you're going to have a, a labor shortage uh i think in 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 this realm now it won't last broadway is what broadway is the most commercial aspect of american theater uh so you know if people don't want to come and be stagehands you know i know 50 people or theater crazed who would who would do it you know if 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 the jobs were open and you didn't and somehow they relaxed some of the <laughs> relaxed some of the the union rules or something like that so that they could do it you know it's like 
It's like the story about the guy, you know, people will run away with the circus and do anything, including clean up after the elephants. You know, that's show business has that glamour and you could have that. But it's gonna be a it's gonna be a slower build. Like one of the reasons that I think you're seeing broad people say that it's not really until 20 in the middle of 2022 that they can get the really big shows up it's in part because they they have they may not be able to get everything they need to get in time they may not be able to build the sets in time they may not have the they may not have the labor back in time and all of that and so that could that could slow things down and the slower and this is like baseball strikes and stuff like that like the longer people live without this stuff the more they become they become aware that they can live without this stuff. Like every, you know, every time a sport a sport goes on strike, it loses ten percent of its audience, and they don't come back. So, you know, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, or 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 I could be wrong, or because because this is all unnatural, it could it really could zing back. But who knows? Let's talk about what what it's like to walk these days through Times Square and Midtown generally. I mean, I'm working. I'm right now. I'm in Midtown, and many of these buildings are still basically empty. I mean, the, the New York Times at the beginning of the pandemic did a story on 1271 Avenue of the Americas on 6th Avenue, which is former Time Life building, which pre-COVID had 8,000 employees coming into it every single day. And when the Times article was written by this by Michael Wilson, it was like 500 employees coming in a day. I think the numbers have apparently gone up a little bit, but not much. Midtown is still pretty empty. Let's listen to what you're saying in December. Yogi Berra once said of a restaurant that it's so crowded nobody goes there anymore. You know, it was like that. Like the last place you wanted to be was walking through Times Square because it was so busy and alive. Now I work just south of Times Square. You walk through it and it is horrifying and heartbreaking because it's you, three guys in an Elmo costume and five junkies lying on the sidewalk. So? It's it's not much better. Right. That's exactly. I mean, how it I really, feel. it really, it really isn't much better, and, and it's like these, uh, it's like these stats on the subways and the commuter railroads into into New York City. I mean, they're still like no one is riding them, and uh, and you know some of this I think is the result. I mean, there's there's sort of large scale reasons for this. Uh, you know, New York is one of the states that you, if you're unemployed, you're getting six hundred dollars a week between the state and the and the federal government, you know, you're getting $30,000 a year as an unemployed person. That's a $15 an hour job that lasts until September 24th of this year when the federal benefit is cut off. And so maybe a week after that, you won't be able to get a seat on the subway anymore because people will be okay. You know, I, I you know, I, I got, I got my, I got my time off here. I got, you know, you competed for my salary, and I did fine staying home, and and now my kids are back, and so I'm going to go back to work. And so maybe in October, uh, it'll be better. And the whole thing is that the streetscape relies on a workforce working in Midtown, and it, and. Uh, it's not back yet. I you hear, oh my God, it's so New York is getting coming back and people are in restaurants and all that. And yeah, people live here are going out at night to restaurants. But by the way, during the day, they're not going into restaurants. Like you, you can get a you can get a table anywhere in 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 the city at any place you couldn't get into before, and they're half empty. And so, you know, then all of that just speaks to uh, again, I think that the 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 fear that I have of this second or third, you know second wave of mini lockdown, which is 
you're just punching the heart out of out of this recovery and you know i mean i are there long-term consequences from that you know never bet against new york never get bet against the you know american spirit and growth and stick to it and all this but it's just going to be you know it's just bad for no for bad reason Let, let's listen to the next soundbite this uh, sound you had from from that time where you you had hope that there was all this talent that was gonna like young entrepreneurial you know resourceful creative talent for whom the city was unaffordable pre-covid and now places like midtown who knows i speak to to developers who say maybe new midtown manhattan will transform to some version of what like greenwich village was in the 60s maybe not that extreme mm -hmm. but it becomes this cluster of young inexpensive striving hardworking talent who would have never thought about you know being in manhattan you know because it was too cost prohibitive uh before now let's let's listen to what you said if new york goes through a terrible downshift in mm -hmm. real estate values in you know commercial real estate this and that and the other one of the positive ancillary consequences would be that it would suddenly again be affordable for a creative class of young people who have increasingly found it impossible to live in this city and create work in this city to come in. They can rent some space and start a, a, a black box theater somewhere. Maybe there'll be deregulatory uh, efforts made by the city council or the city of New York to encourage this because there's going to be so much excess capacity. That's how off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway were created in the in the from the 50s to the 80s. Look, you know, you you uh, you you sent me uh, you you've been sending me a text every now and then with a quote or two from the uh, from the almost certain to be new yeah. mayor of New York City, Eric yeah. Adams. I think you you um, said you pegged his chances at 70 percent be the next mayor right it's got to be even higher than that <laughs> right. probably but let's say so so there's so eric adams gonna be the new mayor of new york he sat down with brett stevens the other day brett did a brett stevens of the new york times and and columnist for commentary magazine and Col that's right a, uh, that's right, contributing editor to commentary yeah. and um the thing about eric adams that's interesting is that he is leaning very heavily into this i'm not an ideologue i want to do whatever works to help the city uh line and <clears throat> regulatory, deregulatory efforts to help spur, uh, you know, a, a, a more vital streetscape and 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 uh, things going on, you know, in the city. Uh, that's everything, right? There, there, there are three aspects of 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 where of where we are. Right. One is public safety. So he's run as a he's going to do what he can to stop crime and he's a Well, he's he'll, talking actually right? pretty boldly. He's talking about yeah, seeking, you know, uh, overturning in some way or reforming the bail reform uh yeah. law that was passed that is, you know, a huge source of the of the rise in violent crime and he's talking yeah. about reimposing some version he uses some qualifying language, but some version of stop and frisk. Um, right. is... and, and so that's public safety. Then there is this stuff about how I understand that we can't tax, um, we cannot tax and spend our way into prosperity or, you know, or, or social equity. Uh, 50,000 people pay. Uh, I looked this up, by the way, it's like $15 billion in mm -hmm. personal income taxes in, in, in New York city. 
$15 billion, the overwhelming amount of that is paid by 50,000 people, a lot of whom and people that we know are hightailing it out of New York. And, you know, one one really, really wealthy person, um, you know, who doesn't live entirely on investments leaves the city and, you know, that's could be a couple million dollars. So in Brett's, out of the budget, in Brett's, in, right in Brett's New York yeah. Times column, Adams he quotes Adams saying, "65 thousand families pay 51 percent of our income taxes. Those income right. taxes so that's are seven, go- right? Go that's ahead, seven and a half billion dollars, right? right. Sixty five thousand families paying seven and a half billion dollars. So he's he's aware of that. So he's got to do he's he's going to do what he can to try to make sure that they don't think that this is an inhospitable place, and then." The third element is, if he's so non-ideological, the things that I'm talking about here are things that you could really encourage, which is there's a lot of empty retail space. Do what you can as a, as a leader to push developers and people like that through the, de, through the process of deregulation for saying, do what you can to let People do fool around, futz around with this space. If you can, you're not going to get another bank. You know, you're not going to get uh, somebody who's going to take a 20-year contract for you know $150 a square foot for your for your space. Let them try. Give them a year. Let them put something in that might be an art space. Who knows? Maybe it'll maybe it'll really work. And so you, that can only happen, A, in a moment of crisis, and B, with somebody who isn't beholden to an ideological understanding that, you know, that, that capitalism and entrepreneurship are bad. So, so he says in this interview hope. with Brett, he says, I'm quoting Eric Adams, how do you have a small business services, so there's this agency, small business services, how do you have a small, ser- small business services that's trying to get restaurants open, but you have the Department of Buildings that takes a year and a half to give someone their CFO to get inside their their certificate of occupancy. Yeah. Try opening a hotel. If yeah. you can get their sprinkler system inspected in two years, you're a miracle maker. So he's like yeah. mocking the bureaucracy of city government yeah. that is so yeah. unwelcoming to uh, yeah. to capital. And we've seen, the one thing we've seen in the city that happened with blinding speed out of nowhere was this construction of this uh, these outdoor dining spaces, which are totally not up to code you know there's no you know the inspectors can't you know all they had to do was fit in this space so that you know the cars wouldn't smash into it and um and it happened because it was armageddon without it right i mean you they weren't allowing people indoors so let them dine outdoors and it showed what you can do when you say okay we're just gonna we're 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 gonna drop these restrictions and we're gonna see what happens. It was it's astonishing. I'm not that crazy about them myself, but I mean, look what happened. Yeah. You know, it was it was it was amazing. Thousands and thousands of restaurants put up these jerry built shacks to to try to keep themselves alive. In terms of Eric Adams, now that we're talking about him, it seems like if he wants to do the things he's talking about doing this the, the the items the agenda items he ticked off in his meeting with brett he's gonna have to risk basically going to war with the new york times editorial board i mean he i'm not saying he's gonna have to be giuliani in 94 95 but pretty close i mean if he wants to reimpose stop and frisk if he wants to take on the bail reform laws 
if he wants to put together, uh, re, you know, reinstitute that that um, plain clothes detective unit that de Blasio disbanded, th- this will become in this environment hugely controversial. Do you think he's okay? Well, he's got it. We don't know. I mean, we'll see. But there's a, there are reasons to think that he should lean into this. They didn't endorse him. They, the they New York Times. And, and, the New York Times right. didn't endorse him. They endorsed Catherine Garcia. And all the they progressive political him. leaders endorsed other candidates, too. Yeah, everybody wanted somebody else. Who endorsed him was my paper, the New York Post. That's who endorsed him. And uh, and he um, uh, and he was uh, he won uh, because he won uh, middle-class black, middle-class and working-class black voters all over the city and and others. He didn't win Manhattan. He didn't win the white people in Manhattan who are the, who are the New York Times' people. Um, and he's not beholden to them. And he has laid out very clearly, I would say a pretty firm, in an odd way, a pretty firm outer borough, what we used to call classically an outer borough strategy, which is he wants to talk to the working people of New York City. Progressives are always talking about helping the working people of New York City, but what do they do? They side with they side with unions and they side with labor unions who insist on uh, who insist on contracts with city and state that make it impossible for non-union labor to get any work. They they and and therefore uh, you know harness you know they 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 shackle uh, you know young entrepreneurs who could maybe get a get an easy con you know get get some work from the city to install smoke detectors in city housing i mean who the hell knows what and and all of that stuff and and he needs and because he is aware that he needs this atm this atm that is the ultra wealthy of new york city to remain here he needs to do all this in tandem, but he also it will mean something to them uh, that the city has a responsive mayor who is friendly to business, who is friendly to the effort to you know reestablish New York as a place to do business, and I don't just mean their kind of business. I mean just a place to do business, a hustler's town, a hustler's city. And uh, and a place where you know if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Like that's so he has every incentive, but it's hard because you know when you get attacked, you know you have to have the perversity in some sense of a Rudy Giuliani. Rudy liked it. I think he fuel. liked. He the, took fuel, yeah, right? Rage fuel from the New York Times' hatred of him, right? The, um, De Blasio. I mean, not De Blasio. Adam says in this Brett in the interview with Brett, he says when he talks about what happens when when taxpayers leave the city. Their income taxes are going to, you know, the importance of keeping them is because those their income taxes are going to going to the police, the teachers, the Department of Sanitation. We have people who say, who cares whether the rich leave? You'd better connect the dots. I care, he says. Yeah. No. I mean, all I'm saying is it's a very he's he is saying very interesting things. Governing uh, according to what he's saying will take both create will take backbone. To resist the yelling and to resist, frankly, unintelligent people like Mark Levine, who you know seems to think that you can run run a run a city by being a you know whining crybaby scaredy cat. 
uh, on the one hand, and then, you know, resisting sort of, you know, uh, NPR, liberal, progressive, A- AOC stuff, uh, uh, even though, you know, there's no one defending you except, let's say, the except, say, the New York Post. Well, there weren't many people defending Rudy except the New York Post. And, you know, he 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 barely got elected the first time and he won in a romp the second. So, you know, results are what are going to matter here. Let's play. I want to play one more uh, piece of sound from that interview, because I asked you at the end of that interview in December to lay out specifically Broadway, but it was more like a symbol for the city turning around. Uh, a kind of t- tell us your big idea for how to create energy and excitement in the creative culture scene in new york here was your idea if you there's one thing you could prescribe to restart broadway post corona what would it be i would say that the thing that could get people back to broadway is bring in 10 huge stars to do shows for six months if you had 10 major across the board stars who were all appearing in broadway at the same moment that would be my prescription and you know and and who cares what it costs so john isn't that what springsteen is doing right now he's got a limited uh he he's he reopened his his show was supposed to end he ended it before the pandemic uh nothing to do with the pandemic and he's decided to reopen it to i think to a version of what you're what you prescribed there and i think it goes right through labor day weekend Right, he's doing that, and then David Byrne is reopening his show, American Utopia, right, uh, which has already been on. That uh, both these shows have actually already been on HBO, but um, sometimes somehow that doesn't seem to hurt. But I mean, the big thing that's like this, but I think it's kind of weird, is that there's supposed to be this huge concert in Central Park right. that Springsteen is going to be in, and and Paul, Paul Simon. Simon should right. be in. Uh, yeah, I think someone under the age of three hundred should probably be in that concert. <laughs> I mean, you know, th- this is really this is really a fantastic, you know, who else is going to, you know, what are, what are they going to get like, you know, Harry James and <laughs> Benny Goodman? I mean, fine. I mean, people, you know, you want to get half a million people to go into the park, get somebody, get Olivia Rodrigo, get, you know, I I don't know, Billie Eilish. I mean, I know they're not New Yorkers, but I mean, that's what you that's what you need uh for real, you know, for real energy and juice. You got to get young people uh, the one thing that is happening on Broadway, which was planned before the pandemic, is going to happen after the pandemic, is Hugh Jackman is going to do The Music Man. Mm-hmm. That's supposed to open in February. Um, doesn't really fit my model because, um, you know, it's like, uh, it doesn't really fit my because it was already going to happen, number one, and it's kind of late, number two, but... Uh, but they could still do it. I'm almost talking about how I don't see that like there's a consortium of New York theater people who are sitting there saying, we're in code red. Like we need to we need to do whatever we can to bring audiences enthusiastically back. And we know what has done that in the last four or five years. Bette Midler and Hello Dolly, granted old, she's old and I'm making fun of the old, but theater is a very expensive proposition. You know, I don't know. Frances McDormand has won three Oscars. She could come and do a play on Broadway. Uh, 
you know, uh, there are various things. Ben Platt could come back and do Dear Evan Hansen. Like that was a that's a famous performance. He's about to it's about to be a, in a movie. Maybe the movie will be a hit. He could come back and do it live. Just whatever it can be. So it's not just like a play. Lin Manuel Miranda and In the Heights. Lin Manuel Miranda going back and right. Lin Manuel exactly. So minus 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 the. <laughs> the woke backlash. Well, minus to, the woke to backlash, in the heights. Right. Yes. By the way, before we oh, wrap, what, yes. what's your quick take on on the in the heights? What did we learn from that? From the release of the movie? Never the, apologize. Never apologize. Fight back. They say, "Oh, you made us invisible. We're Afro Latino, and you made us invisible, Lin Manuel Miranda, because you didn't cast anybody." And then what he should say is, "Drop dead," because if you don't say "drop dead," they own you. And and he said for at, Rita Moreno, uh, who uh, isn't even in In the Heights, but uh, what, is it a documentary about herself that Lin Manuel produced? Went on Stephen Colbert and basically said, "What's wrong with you people? Lin Manuel is the best thing that ever happened to Puerto Ricans." And sixteen hours and later, he's done she more. Was, he's done more to put a spotlight on them. Yeah, yeah, than which any, is true. Right, right. And then sixty hours later, she was like, "I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I feel so, so terrible." So why? Why did she? Why did she roll back? Okay, very simply, she's in West Side Story, directed by Steven Spielberg, which is coming out in the in the late fall or the early. And Spiel, I think Spielberg didn't want any trouble, and he wanted to get on the right side of this. And he is in for a bruising because if you can if you can accuse. Lin Manuel Miranda of rewriting, you know, Latino history for your own horrible, selfish cultural ends. Uh, imagine what they're going to say about Steven Spielberg and Tony Kushner, uh, the screenwriter, uh, making, uh, you know, making a musical about uh, Puerto Ricans uh, in the late 1950s in in New York City. Uh, neither one of whom is uh, who have they have more in common with you and me, Dan, than they do with Puerto Ricans. Let's just say, uh, in the circumcisional uh, category. <laughs> so you, if I bring you back here after West Side Story comes out, yeah, and we replay the tape from this conversation, mm-hmm. your prediction that there's going to be a woke, politically correct motivated backlash against West Side Story. There will absolutely be one, even though I suspect that the story of West Side Story is going to be that the that the Sharks are the good guys and the Jets are the bad guys. That's the only real reason that you would remake it is to go with that spin. And even so, it's going to be bad. Why? Because, you know, anybody will publish anything now and it'll look fun and there'll be a whole talk about it. And then they panic and they shouldn't panic. And Lynn Mangler shouldn't have panicked. He should have gotten his back up. And said, "Don't talk. Don't talk about me that way. How dare you? You know. I. You know. You're not gonna. You're not gonna talk about me that way. Who my, do you think you are? My my favorite prescription from you, John, from this conversation is that the way President Biden should declare the end of the pandemic <laughs> is to say Zygazun. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Seriously. Yes. yes. <laughs> If if President Biden or Kamala, either one, Vice President Harris, one of them says Zygazunt, we're done lecturing you to get you don't want to get vaccinated, don't get vaccinated. You know? Dayenu. Yeah. <laughs> See, this is all I this is all I want. And I'm not gonna get it, but you know, maybe I'll get it. And then you're really, really gonna have to give me some merch. 
Exactly. Uh, John Podhoritz, thank you again for the third visit to the uh, post-corona podcast. And I hope by the time you're back on, we actually are post-corona. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. All right. Take care. That's our show for today. If you want to follow John Podhoritz's work, subscribe to Commentary Magazine. Go to commentarymagazine.com. And be sure to subscribe to the Commentary Magazine podcast. You can also follow Commentary on Twitter, at Commentary. And when you go to the Commentary website, by the way, order some merchandise. I say that, full disclosure, as a board member of Commentary. Post-Corona is produced by Alon Benatar. Until next time, I'm your host, Dan Senor. <laughs>